Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and welcome to the New Books in Law podcast. We are joined today by Dr. Stanley Fish. He is the Davidson Kahn Distinguished University Professor of Humanities and Law at Florida International University and a visiting professor of law at Cardozo University. He has previously taught at the University of California at Berkeley, Johns Hopkins University, Duke, and the University of Illinois at Chicago, where he was the dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. He has published many works, and the one that he joins us to discuss today is his latest book entitled The First, How to Think About Hate Speech, Campus Speech, Religious Speech, Fake News, Post-Truth, and Donald Trump. Dr. Fish, welcome to New Books in Law podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So in contemplating this work with this lengthy subtitle, you're obviously going to address a lot of speech topics. Uh, the book addresses more than that as well. Um, what was it that inspired you to write it? Obviously, there's something connected with Donald Trump. And so I'm curious uh, what your chief motivations are for publishing this book now. Well, Donald Trump does speak prominently in the book. But I would say that my chief motivation is to dispel uh, certain uh, myths about the First Amendment. And I guess uh, the key myth is that uh, the First Amendment uh, can be invoked in almost any situation uh, in which someone has said something and might possibly be rebuked or punished uh, for it. Whereas, as you know, First Amendment is a very limited doctrine, applies only to curbs on speech imposed uh, by the government, uh, and that there are many situations in life in which, while you can speak freely, uh, the consequences that may follow uh, could be great and harmful, and no First Amendment right protects you from those circumstances. So I wanted to try to explain uh, in what context the First Amendment applies, and then also in what uh, multiple contexts issues of speech arise. So I'm very familiar with this problem myself when I teach undergrads about law and uh, the concept of uh, the state action requirement that there are the rights that are guaranteed under the Constitution, the, the Bill, of Men, uh, Bill of Rights in particular, are guaranteed against government action, but not against private actors. Uh, this is something their students are sometimes surprised to learn. Um, but that brings up when you make that distinction, of course, Yes, there's the things that government can and cannot do on the case-based limits and exceptions to what government can and can't do, which you address to a degree. But also, you are concerned, it seems with me, with the concept of free speech, uh, regardless of whether it's a private actor and a, or a public actor that's restricting it. And so it seems to me that you're also concerned with the conceptualization or, the, or what we might term the, uh, the ethos or the theme of freedom of thought and speech. Yeah, I think that's right. And my concern here um, is uh, uh, is to emphasize uh, that free speech is not a single thing. It's not a doctrine uh, that you can identify. It's not a value that you can isolate 
from all of the situations in which it is invoked uh, by some party. I say rather that free speech is a rhetoric, a collection of slogans and phrases and distinctions uh, which operate quite differently in different uh, situations. Uh, to put this in slightly more academic terms, free, freedom of speech has no doctrinal center. At least uh, that's uh, my argument. Uh, its shape and its scope uh, depend on the situation in which it is uh, invoked. So what we have is a set of practices uh, to which term free speech is attached when someone thinks that attaching that term uh, might be useful, but we don't have any specific isolatable thing called free speech doctrine. So in addressing the concept before we talk about peculiar types of context, the concept uh, you note is in some ways you don't quote uh, Samuel Johnson, but it seems like you have him in spirit in mind when you say that it it's a political tool. In some ways, it's like a refuge of scoundrels. <laughs> and uh, that's okay uh, from your vantage point. So what do you mean by that's okay? Well, what I mean by that's okay is that the flexibility of free speech doctrine, the way in which it can be turned this way or that way, uh, depending on the skill of the person who is trying to employ it, is also its strength. Uh, because the doctrine then uh, can be... Uh, made malleable, um, uh, can be massaged in ways that are helpful uh, to someone trying to deal with a particular situation. Free speech doctrine, as we use it in the United States, is used to do a number of things uh, that we want to have done. It's used uh, to protect uh, dissenters. Um, it's used to uh, maintain a free flow of conversation. Uh, among citizens who are attempting uh, to participate uh, in a democratic con conversation. Um, and uh, in all of those uh, contexts, and of course there are many more uh, than, I, than I name, it is better that free speech uh, be, as I've already said, malleable uh, rather than a fixed thing uh, which uh, admits of no exceptions and is absolute. Now, of course, there are people who do believe uh, that freedom of speech as a doctrine is a fixed thing and is more or less uh, absolute, uh, and that any exceptions uh, to the freedom of speech uh, are, are rare uh, and uh, must uh, be justified by massive arguments. Uh, so that my position uh, is, to some extent, uh, in opposition uh, to those free speech absolutists. Regardless of their political persuasion, though, it, seem, it would seem to me that the free speech absolutists, um, this is my opinion, that they're probably a minority, though. Do you agree with that? In other words, left and right, uh, different perspectives I, on... Go ahead. I guess it depends upon what population we're talking I'm about. I'm thinking of the U.S., modern U.S. Well, in the modern U.S., no. I think that uh, the uh, understanding of the person in the street the man and woman of the street uh, of the First Amendment uh, is, in fact, on the absolutist or American Civil Liberties Union side uh, uh, of the street. That most people, if they were asked, people who are not academics, who do not have legal training, were asked, well, what is free speech? Uh, they would give an answer 
that is more in accord uh, with the strong absolutist position uh, than it is in uh, with mine. Now, in the academic world, um, you have a split, uh, and it's been uh, so for quite a long time. You have prominent First Amendment theorists uh, who are absolutists or near absolutists, uh, like Nadine Strawson, former president of the ACLU, uh, uh, like Edwin Baker, now unfortunately uh, deceased like Floyd Abrams, one of the most prominent First Amendment lawyers um, in, in this uh, country. Uh, and on the other side, uh, you have those who are insisting uh, on, a flexi on the kind of flexibility uh, that I uh, describe uh, in my book and who uh, go so far as to deny uh, the distinction between speech and action, which is the basis of a strong First Amendment uh, doctrine, and I'm thinking here of people like Jeremy Waldron uh, and Catherine uh, McKinnon, uh, Frederick Schauer, uh, Robert Post, uh, and others. So the two lists, as I'm sure you recognize, the names that I've given you uh, uh, are, are, are lists of very prominent people, so that there is this divide and continues to be this divide uh, on the theoretical level. Uh, in professional or academic First Amendment discussions. Right. I, when I think about the absolutist uh, and exceptions uh, division, I'm thinking of the man in the street. So I guess I'll challenge you a little bit on this, because when I teach undergrads, I ask them, you know, how, I think it depends on how you frame the question. Do you believe in free speech and that it should be, quote unquote, unlimited, that you might get a, a fair show of hands there, but at the same time, you can always come up with the state secrets concerns, the uh, disclosure of troops and wartime problems. And then you have this gradient that begins where they all of a sudden start thinking of all the possible exceptions. And so if you ask in a particular context, uh, I think the man on the street would be less absolutist. And so maybe it's how you frame the question. Well, <laughs> yes. Uh, my experience is that people who are absolutist, or at least uh, give absolutist answers to the initial question, turn out in the end uh, not to be so. Uh, years ago, uh, I debated a prominent uh, uh, free speech polemicist, also a great jazz uh, critic, Nat Hentoff. Uh, and Hentoff, in our debate at least, was a very strong absolutist. Uh, but later, when a... Uh, person who had broken away uh, uh, from uh, a, a uh, strong anti-Israel association in order to become even stronger uh, in his denunciation of Israel, started appearing on college campuses and saying things like, we must get rid of the Jews, those uh, bagel-eating vermin from the caves of Europe, Nat Huntoff changed his tune and said, well, of course, I didn't mean that. Uh, and that's, I think, the move one often finds. One finds it, for example, um, in the work of John Milton, the 17th century poet, uh, who, along with John Stuart Mill, is usually considered to be uh, one of the cornerstone figures in the development of modern free speech doctrine. And here the document in Milton's work to be cited is his Areopagitica, which is a very strong 
defense of free speech against both prior constraint and to a certain extent against uh, forms of censorship. But three quarters of the way through that track, Milton says, of course I don't mean Catholics. Uh, when I argue for uh, a, a tolerance uh, of speech, uh, and he says, Catholics, them, he says, we must extirpate, E-X-T-I-R-P-A-T-E, which means tear up by the roots. So that his exception to the free speech uh, tolerance doctrine was Catholics. And my argument is that everyone has an exception. Uh, it's just that uh, that exception is not uh, always invoked or even realized uh, by the person uh, until... Uh, a moment when he or she realizes that I didn't mean that. And so just to be clear, you too embrace exceptions to absolute free speech, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, fact, I'm not, I, am, I am absolutely uh, not an absolutist unless I'm in a situation in which I think the context and the norms informing the context call for a form of absolutism. So I'm likely to be more of a free speech absolutist or someone uh, recognizably like a free speech absolutist in academic contexts. That is, in the context in which you're talking about what should be going on in classrooms uh, or in a university. Uh, and there, the presumption with which I begin um, is that freedom of speech uh, is something that should be prized unless, and this is a very big unless, it comes into conflict with educational values. Okay, and so I want to talk about the distinction between free inquiry and free speech that you discuss at length. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you about some of the justifications, regardless of whether one claims or proclaims that they're an absolutist versus not. Some of the justifications for free speech, as you mentioned, uh, Milton, they've been around ever since the 17th century, which is the idea that freedom of expression or speech leads to or produces a greater understanding or an understanding, at least the potential for understanding truth. So what, what do you think of that argument? Well, I think that that's a good argument, and I will return to the academic context uh, to uh, cite a form of it. That is, if freedom of inquiry is to be protected, and is to flourish, it can't be the case that lines of inquiry are shut off in advance, or that other lines of inquiry are elevated uh, to the status of being unchallengeable. Uh, so their freedom uh, of speech is necessary uh, to the pursuit uh, of truth. But on the other hand, if you give that traditional answer to the question, what is the First Amendment for, it's for uh, the facilitation of the search for truth, you then have to acknowledge, or at least I argue, that you then have to acknowledge that some forms of speech, rather than facilitating the search for truth, will in fact block and frustrate the search for truth. And those forms of speech must be curtailed uh, so that the search can continue. Although it sounds paradoxical, this means uh, that in order to protect the value that freedom of speech stands for and instantiates, you must limit freedom of speech and curtail those forms of speech uh, that undermine the value. 
And of course, that's really the rub, right? Because theoretically, you can identify potential instances where uh, freedom of thought or expression or speech, however you characterize it or label it, uh, actually hinders the search for truth. But then again, what what I think is a uh, uh, erroneous uh, proclamation that will be quashed by free uh, deliberation, you may think is hindering it. And so the rub really is where these judgment calls are made between uh, quashing the speech that we think is harmful versus uh, uh, opening the sluice gates so that anything can be said in the effort to reach truth, right? I mean, that's really a difficult choice to be made, whether it's by a judge or an employer or somebody's parents. Exactly right. And what you call judgment calls, I would say, uh, amount to the exercise of a political decision. Uh, what you are pointing out, I think, quite correctly, um, is that any decision as to what form of speech uh, undermines the core values of freedom of speech will be a political decision in that some persons will challenge either my or, uh, or mine or your uh, identification of a form of speech uh, that is uh, so uh, subversive or scurrilous uh, that it must uh, be uh, regulated. And what does one do then? Well, the answer that a lot of free speech theorists want to give is we search for a principle that will allow us to distinguish between those forms of speech that are genuine contributions to the democratic conversation and those forms of speech that threaten to shut the democratic conversation down. And what I say again and again in this book is there is no such principle that decisions about free speech matters what to regulate, what not to regulate, what to protect, what not to protect, are always going to be political decisions, and that there's no way out of that. Or as I put it in, at a certain point, politics is inside the First Amendment from the beginning. It's not outside the First Amendment as a threat to its integrity. It is, in fact, politics are constitutive of what the First Amendment is and what it means at any point. So in addressing the uh, free speech on university campuses, uh, that can occur uh, in a variety of contexts, whether it's in the classroom or with invited speakers. You make this distinction, uh, as others have as well, regarding the concept of the mission of a university and freedom of inquiry versus the concept of free speech. So how's that distinction uh, play out in reality? Well, it's very simple, really. Freedom of speech is a democratic value, means that all voices are at least theoretically equal and have an equal right to be heard, so that access to the, to the microphone in a democratic conversation should be available to all. No voice should be silenced, nor should any voice be elevated uh, to a position of preeminence in advance. In the academy, however, that's not at all the rule or the ethos. In the academy, the voices that are heard are the voices that have passed through a rigorous set of judgments made by departments, made by deans, made by provosts, made by the editors of learned journals that are published by university presses. Uh, in all of these cases, the powers that be 
are engaged in the business of excluding voices rather than the business of welcoming in as many voices are possible. And as I say in the book, uh, the process of freedom of inquiry, or the process by which freedom of inquiry uh, is realized, is not democratic. It's more, in fact, Darwinian uh, in, in that uh, the voices that you hear in the classroom or read uh, in the learned journals or in the books published by university presses uh, are the voices that are left standing after all the negative votes have been taken. So what do you think, though, of those Darwinian winners in the university currently? Um, the university uh, faculties are often um, supportive of some student efforts to quash speech. And so in some ways, it would seem that some faculty agree with the idea of uh, quashing what you might have described as freedom of inquiry. Well, that's true. Uh, uh, that's an unfortunate feature. Unfortunate piece, uh, in my uh, in in my view, unfortunate feature of the current scene that uh, many faculty, or at least a significant number uh, of faculty uh, members, um, have decided uh, that inquiry must go in certain directions rather than being open and free, and that certain uh, viewpoints uh, cannot be explored and that other viewpoints cannot be challenged. Uh, and that is the basis of a great many uh, of the student protests uh, these days, and also uh, the basis of some of the slogans and practices that we've now been hearing for a number of years, safe spaces, microaggressions, um, warnings, trigger warnings, uh, cultural appropriation, non-platforming, uh, all of which are designed to produce a situation in which only certain voices get to be heard, certain ideas get to be considered, and others uh, are turned away uh, before the seminar begins or uh, before uh, the, the, dis the panel discussion begins. And it would seem to me that uh, some academics who embrace this approach, in other words, they embrace safe spaces, et cetera, are probably, at least this is my estimation from my own experience, that they too may embrace your uh, con conceptualization of speech as a political concept. And they would say, yes, it is a political concept. And part of the problem with politics is that politics is the exercise of power and that those who get to speak have an avenue to power. Therefore, that's why we need to shut down some of these avenues. Well, once you, once you bring up the question of politics and political concepts, you have to be very careful. Behind the attitude that you've just described uh, is a mantra that has been around for at least 30 years, uh, and that is that everything is political. And of course, in a certain sense, that's true. Uh, if more than one person is trying to decide what to do, uh, there's always the possibility that one of the two will disagree with the other uh, and on disagree strongly on, on a basis of policy underwritten by some principle. When that happens, you have politics, which means that in almost, and not almost, in any socially organized situation, uh, politics will be the content uh, of the most significant conversations. So everything is political in that sense. It's true. 
But what I say is that it's trivially, trivially true, or that it proves too much, because what it ignores is that while politics is everywhere, politics is not the same in every situation uh, in which the political can be invoked. As we know, uh, there is partisan politics, there is barroom politics, courtroom politics, boardroom politics, bedroom politics, and academic politics, to list only a few. Uh, and in any of those areas, the political will have a shape that de is determined by the nature of the enterprise, by its ambitions, by its scope, by its purposes. Uh, and therefore, the mistake, at least as I see it, is to import the politics of one situation or arena of practice into another situation or arena of practice. While there are certainly political questions that arise in the university, questions of whom, whom to hire, what the curriculum should be, uh, what the, the nature of a major in a discipline should be, whether, con whether departments should could be combined or eliminated. These are all political questions. But they are quite different from the political questions that arise when you discuss which of the two major parties uh, should be in power, when you discuss whether or not we should preeminently strike uh, a North Korea or begin to reassess our alignment uh, with NATO. Uh, those kinds of questions, I say, and they are political, of course, don't belong in the university, not because the university is free of politics, but because the politics that take place in the university are and should be academic politics. Okay. So another area of concern in the university uh, that's been addressed by some other authors, uh, you critique in particular uh, uh, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt's uh, recent publication about uh, cognitive behavioral theory and how it might apply to um, instructing the youth uh, in college campuses and also who are in the workforce now. What, what's the uh, origin of your disagreement with them? Well, I'm not disagreeing with them on matters of fact. What they are concerned to understand uh, is what practices in a university uh, will uh, best assure up uh, the mental health uh, and uh, equilibrium of students. Uh, and their argument is that practices like safe spaces and trigger warnings, rather than strengthening students morally uh, and intellectually, intellectually uh, weaken students by making them uh, unprepared to engage uh, in the kind of contest and argument they will meet once school ends. Uh, now, I have no quarrel with their analyses, in part because they know a great deal more uh, about uh, the cognitive uh, therapy that they recommend than I do. My quarrel is with the relevance of that entire argument to the academy, to academic life, to what happens in colleges uh, and universities. I don't think that instructors should be concerned either to coddle their students, which is the critique uh, that Haight and Lukanyov uh, make uh, of some, nor should it be the uh, strategy of, of uh, instructors 
to strengthen uh, the resolve uh, and uh, of, of their students in some form of what has formerly been called tough love. Those psychological concerns seem to me to be to the side of academic concerns. An instructor should be interested only in presenting the material in a comprehensive and up-to-date and academically responsible way and lead his or her students through those materials um, in a way that at the end of the semester uh, will make the student someone who could go out and teach the course himself or herself tomorrow if the opportunity arose. For me, that is the academic responsibility. Teach the materials in a way that allows the students to become masters of the material. What happens to them or doesn't happen to them psychologically is, of course, of great interest, but is not of concern to the professor who cannot design or produce character uh, of any kind, but the professor can design and, and produce uh, a course that does the academic job. So is it your sense that you are a voice in the wilderness, or do you think other academics, um, is, is there a healthy division between academics who agree with your viewpoint versus those who think, whether it's uh, Haidt and Lukianoff's approach of, of uh, um, tough love versus uh, another approach of uh, coddling or caring for the student, um, how do you see the division among faculty today? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, I talk to groups uh, when I... Uh, for example, uh, go to a, a college and, and um, speak to faculty members, and some people agree with me, uh, and uh, some people, some people uh, do not. I think there is more concern generally uh, for the mental, uh, psychological, psychological health uh, of students uh, than there was uh, when I began. Uh, teaching uh, so, so many years ago. Well, in addition to discussing uh, free speech and freedom of inquiry, uh, another good portion of your book is devoted to the First Amendment in regard to the religion clauses. Yes. And so uh, let's discuss uh, how you see the religion clauses either fitting or not fitting so well in the concept of the First Amendment. Well, I believe, and this is the thesis of that chapter, that the religion clause, or the religion clauses, the free exercise clause and the establishment clause, do not, strictly speaking, belong in the Constitution. Why? Uh, because in different ways, each clause puts a special spotlight on religious speech uh, and the actions that flow from religious speech. So the free exercise clause says, that religiously inspired speech, and in some interpretations, religiously inspired acts, should be exempt uh, from generally applicable laws. And uh, that's to put the uh, production of religious speech uh, in a special and honored place. The establishment clause warn, warns against religious speech, and warns against uh, religious speech uh, that threatens to blur the distinction between the private realm uh, and the public or civic realm. So even though they are in tension, and perhaps, as some have said, 
uh, in, in a state of contradiction. These two causes do something that I think the spirit of the Constitution militates against. They single out a form of speech for special attention, while the entire document of the institution is a democratic document uh, in which uh, all voices contend uh, in the marketplace uh, of ideas. And what I say in this chapter is that this anomaly, the anomalous uh, appearance in the Constitution uh, of the religion clauses, produces a great many conceptual problems that cannot be solved. And we see those problems these days arising in those cases where florists, photographers, um, and other purveyors of goods and services are declining in some cases to offer those goods and services to the celebration of same-sex marriage. And they argue when doing so that the free exercise clause means that they should not be compelled to engage in an activity which, according to their own religious beliefs, is a sinful activity. And on the other side, people argue that the state's commitment to eliminating discrimination must, in fact, and I have to use this verb, must trump the free exercise rights of uh, individual believers. So there's a conflict which I think is generated by the anomalous position of the religion clause in the Constitution. And it is also, I argue in the book, a conflict that cannot be resolved. It's more like a pendulum. Sometimes the pendulum swings in the free exercise uh, direction, uh, and sometimes the pendulum swings in the direction of generally applicable laws, no exceptions at all, even for persons who are deeply religious. And I think this swinging of the pendulum, uh, which has again uh, been uh, with us at least since the end of the 19th century, will continue to be with us forever. So uh, just to clarify, in terms of the, the purposes of the religion clauses, um, you would you agree that they made, quote-unquote, sense at the time that they were included back in 1791 because of the experience that the former colonists had had regarding the, the usage of state power in the service of particular faiths? And, of course, that's the experience of conflict in Europe ever since this uh, Reformation, uh, so that that historical knowledge and uh, the perception of what state power can do in the service of religion, that it made sense in 1791, but once you all of a sudden start applying it to the states, as we've done through incorporation, uh, that that's when the problems occur? Or is it uh, ab initio, a problem ever since they included it back in the 1790s? Well, I think it's potentially a problem. Uh, but I think it's certainly the case that we can understand why there was some pressure, and also some who resisted that pressure, uh, as you know, uh, to include a, a, an amendment that specified the freedom of religion uh, because of the experience of so many in our early republic who were fleeing Europe because their freedom of religion uh, had been uh, curtailed. Now, 
there's an argument, as I'm sure you know, that what the religion clauses were supposed to do is to prevent the national government from setting up an established church, whereas the churches then established in many of the colonies uh, were perfectly okay. And that was the situation for a number of years uh, until those establishments also uh, were uh, deemed uh, unconstitutional, uh, and we, and we uh, then uh, moved into the, in, into the uh, situation uh, that has obtained uh, ever since, where the uh, free exercise privilege on the one hand and the no uh, establishment obstacle on the other hand uh, are understood to apply both to the national government uh, and uh, to the states. But yes, I think that these the conflicts that have now flowered in all of these bakers and photographers and florist cases uh, have always been potentially there and were there in the late 19th century case, uh, uh, Reynolds versus the United States, uh, where a Mormon claimed that the practice of polygamy was essential to his religious practice, and therefore to keep him to, to I'm sorry, uh, to not allow him to practice polygamous marriage uh, would be to endanger his salvation. And the church rejected that argument, saying that if the argument were accepted, then every religious person could decide which laws of the United States to obey and which to disobey, and we would have the anomalous situation in which a person performing an act inspired by religious faith uh, would be exempt from punishment, whereas a non-religious person performing the same act would uh, be indicted and convicted. And that argument is still being made uh, on one side of the divide uh, that I have described uh, in our conversation. So it's free exercise on the one hand, generally applicable laws, uh, on the other hand, uh, and uh, they, there cannot be, I believe, uh, any way of reconciling this conflict. So this distinction that you've described, of course, as you know, it has been uh, with us ever since the 1870s uh, in terms of court doctrine. And now, uh, ever since the 1990s, really, um, we've got uh, these conflicts that go to what you might describe as the micro level, where you talk about photographers and florists and bakers. Uh, so if you were so fortunate as to be a justice on the court, how would you rule in some of these cases? Would you ignore uh, effectively the free exercise clause and base decisions on speech or expression only? Or how would you grapple with that? Well, I probably would regard it as a political uh, decision. I would probably look at the situation and ask myself questions like, well, if we allow a few bakers not to offer their services to those same-sex couples who wish to marry, uh, what will the consequences be? Will they be consequences as great as the consequences of allowing restaurants not to serve black people, uh, which is, of course, was, of course, the situation in this uh, country uh, in the middle, uh, early and middle uh, 20th century. So I would ask a question, well, it's a, it's a kind of learned hand question. 
learned hand, the great, uh, perhaps uh, the greatest judge who was not ever a member of the Supreme uh, Court, uh, described balancing in this way. Uh, first, you towed up the costs of allowing the practice to continue, and then you towed up the costs of prohibiting or regulating the practice, and you see which costs are greater. And then you choose to go with the other option. Now, for those who believe that there are matters of principle involved, uh, balancing is always uh, going to be uh, regarded uh, as an unfortunate compromise uh, and a, an abandonment of principle. But I would probably be a balancing judge rather than a principal judge uh, if I were on the Supreme Court. All right. Another area that you've discussed in the book is your hostility to sunshine. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, explain uh, your concern with uh, uh, disclosure or sunshine laws and, and efforts uh, of the sort. Well, actually, I had experience with sunshine laws in Florida some years ago when I was a candidate for the presidency of Florida Atlantic University. Uh, and in Florida, uh, all meetings about candidates and all discussions of about candidates are open to the public, and the public can come and attend uh, an interview with some candidate for a position in the University of Florida system um, is being considered. And I was, in fact, being considered for the presidency, as I said, of Florida Atlantic University, and gave an interview uh, to the Board of Trustees, uh, and at that interview were uh, some citizens of Florida. So there's something kind of quaint uh, uh, and I think uh, uh, attractive about the sunshine policy. But on the other hand, what the policy has meant for the state universities is that many, many likely candidates for the positions that are being advertised uh, will withdraw or decline to be considered because uh, they have positions in another university in another state, and they don't want it to be generally known by their present superiors that they are considering uh, a, 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 a position elsewhere. So they will withdraw. So sunshine laws do have uh, that kind of liability. But in general, the notion of sunshine, or as Justice Brandeis put it in an oft-repeated quotation, sunshine is the best of disinfectants. Uh, what that means is that if you think that there are forms of speech that are bad, pernicious, that undermine the fabric of civilization, don't censor them, don't silence them. Instead, let them come out in the light of day, and in the light of day, they will be seen for what they are, uh, and their appeal uh, will uh, be diminished, and they will wither and die. And as I put it in the book, the only argument against that optimistic thesis is all of recorded history. <laughs> oh, if that's all, then uh, who cares? In other words, that's not the way things happen. Uh, behind the sunshine mantra is the even more basic First Amendment idea that the more speech, the better. And again, here's a quotation or part of a quotation uh, from Judge Learned Hand, who said about decisions that are made in the public space that they will be better decisions if they are made 
by, quote, a multitude of tongues, uh, unquote. And presumably, the more tongues, the better. That is, all voices should enter the mix without any gatekeeping uh, or filtering or, or monitoring. The more speech, the better. What the Internet has shown us, among other things, is that following out this procedural assumption is a disaster. Uh, and that what you get when, uh, trans, when, when the, when the uh, thesis of transparency uh, or shun, sunshine is given its full uh, realization, uh, it's not good decisions made out of a multitude of tongues, but a multitude of tongues that is endlessly, uh, exponentially uh, proliferating to the point where no one knows uh, what speech to rely on uh, and what speech uh, to set aside. So my argument is that gatekeepers, filters, uh, monitors, rather than being the enemy, rather than being things that must be removed so that we have unmediated access to the data, I'm saying that gatekeepers, filters, and monitors are absolutely essential to the establishment of procedures according to which we can sift the data and say of some of it, well, it comes from an unreliable source, we'll not pay that much attention to it. And others, we will say, well, yes, the source here is very credible, uh, let's take this seriously. That kind of language, uh, the language of filtering and gatekeepers, is exactly what the apostles of transparency militate against. And I believe that to the extent that they have had any success, uh, uh, the success, as I said a moment ago, has been a disaster. And of course, as you rightly note, uh, one of the classic examples against uh, sunshine or work is uh, the Constitutional Convention itself, um, conducted behind closed doors, uh, armed guards, <laughs> and uh, definitely the opposite of what we would tolerate today in terms of policymaking, it's, it's especially at the constitutional level. When I read this argument, I was also struck by um, another kind of version of the sunshine approach, which is the forced disclosure of membership lists. So I was thinking about uh, the famous case from NAACP versus Alabama back in the 1950s and um, uh, similar concerns that have been echoed today regarding disclosures of political contributions to different candidates and all of the social consequence and business uh, commercial consequences that flow when uh, a contribution is disclosed publicly. Um, so certainly sunshine in that sense uh, inhibits individual liberty rather than promoting it. Well, that's an argument that has been made, uh, although uh, Justice Thomas, among others, have made the argument on the other side. Right. So you also have a, a concern with postmodernism and uh, we noted it before we started recording. You said that your title was uh, your subtitle was actually a little bit longer, and it, it if uh, if it originally included um, postmodernism in your title, that would have certainly uh, been to your satisfaction. What what is it that you're concerned with regarding postmodernism? I understand by the way we published this uh, inclination not to include postmodernism, although I thought that the inclusion of transparency might have been uh, helpful. Because postmodernism okay. post is a topic that's been overdone uh, 
in, in recent years, postmodernism, whatever it is, and most people don't have the slightest idea of what it is, uh, is regarded as the uh, incubator of relativism, the enemy of truth and objectivity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, my concern in this book is to uh, just give a very simple uh, account of what postmodernism postmodernism is and isn't, uh, so that I can uh, assert uh, with some force that postmodernism could not be the source of our current troubles, however you understand our current troubles. And that postmodernism is basically a very simple assertion that none of our experience of the world is direct. Uh, it is all mediated uh, by discursive forms of thought, by institutions, uh, by uh, well-used uh, metaphors, by phrases uh, and slogans, uh, by cultural and political perspectives, uh, and by so much else, so that we never, in fact, are in a situation where we are simply opening our eyes and looking at the world, quote, as it really is, unquote. Instead, the eyes through which we look are always perspectival, are always uh, the eyes uh, whose uh, perception uh, and content uh, are uh, produced uh, by the particular situation uh, we inhabit. And that no human being, neither you nor I nor anyone else, can not be in a situation. And if that's true, if no human being cannot be in a situation, and if we see things through the lens of the situation uh, we happen uh, to uh, be in, uh, then the possibility of direct communication or direct apprehension of reality has been lost to us from the beginning. So to quote scripture, now we see through a glass darkly, or actually through many glasses darkly, someday face to face, but not now, and not next week, and not when artificial intelligence or some other techno-utopian dream has been realized. Well, the last words in your title are Donald Trump. What does he have to do with all of this? Well, I first of all, uh, Trump appears in many of the chapters uh, in short uh, bursts or a passage or two, uh, but this, they are, these short passages are all in preparation for the treatment of Trump uh, in the penultimate chapter, in chapter five, where I'm trying to answer the question, why is it that Trump's habits or practice of political speech have been so effective? Uh, effective in the sense of entirely discombobulating his opponents, who continually believe that they have him on the ropes, only to learn that he has escaped and is standing once again more or less triumphant, at least uh, in the political arena. How does this happen? What is his secret? What kind of speech practice uh, is uh, he performing and perfecting? And I answer that question by saying that Trump is the master of something I call uh, principled irresponsibility. And by that I mean that Trump, unlike other politicians, uh, has no anxiety about making what he says today match up 
with what he said yesterday or a week ago or a month ago. In fact, Trump lives from moment to moment, from rhetorical moment to rhetorical moment. And his concern is only to win that moment uh, by a quip, by an exaggeration, uh, by invoking some conspiracy uh, theory, by giving someone a nickname, and all the other techniques that we become familiar with uh, in the past three years. What Trump is not doing is giving reasons and making arguments. And yet, in response to his performance, what his opponents continually do is give reasons and make arguments. Uh, they point out inconsistencies. Uh, they point out that what he said two weeks ago is in total contradiction with what he said three weeks ago. And they think they've scored a point. But they haven't scored any points because that's not the game he is playing. So in my analysis, the uh, opponents of Trump are continuing to play a political game in which speech counts in a certain traditional way, and he is playing quite another game. And as long as they don't realize this and fashion some kind of counter strategy, uh, they are going to be again holding the wrong end of the stick uh, when election time comes around. It seems to me that there's a, uh, as often there is, there's a dichotomy between people who uh, analyze politics or are in the academic world and the so-called uh, man on the street approach to this understanding of Trump. So uh, for those who write about politics, the phrase that you often hear is that uh, Trump is a transactional person, that he, uh, if he does have principles, uh, they aren't easily discerned in his behavior and that what he does is he acts uh, in accord with achieving whatever goal uh, he wants to achieve, not so much in adherence to principle. So he's a consequentialist, in other words. He's he's concerned with what the consequences are for him or his uh, particular uh, concerns rather than adhering to principle. At the moment. At the moment. At right. the moment. And, but if you tell uh, supporters of Trump this, or not even, they don't even have to be supporters. They could just, they could be even opponents of Trump. Some uh, quote-unquote man-on-the-street responses, uh, I've certainly had this from some students, is that, uh, well, that's the way all politicians are. Um, and all politicians say what they think their audience wants to hear. And, of course, th there's some truth in that. Uh, I mean, there's a great deal of truth in it. Uh, the slipperiness of politicians, the uh, seeming uh, disregard for principle or consistency in order to satisfy a particular audience. So how how to reconcile Trump? Is he merely an extreme version of what everybody has become familiar with in terms of politics at the national and local level? Or is he I'm sorry. No, I think I think it's more than that. I mean, these politicians who sometimes stretch the truth or, or try to deny that they said something that's fact in the public record are nervous and anxious uh, when they perform these rhetorical moves. And you can see them being nervous and anxious. The wonderful thing about Trump is that he's not nervous and anxious. Uh, he displays no anxiety of performance. Um, his performance is, as he would say, this is a favorite word of his, perfect every time. It's a perfect performance because he's won the moment. So I think that uh, actually... Uh, Trump uh, is, at least in terms of his production of political speech and its effects, uh, is something 
rather new in the political world. Do you see him as, um, well, of course, we don't know. This is asking you to predict. Uh, do you see him as a blip on the screen, an unusual instance, and then politics will, quote unquote, return to its normal dysfunctionality when uh, when he disappears from the scene? Or might he be a, a model for others to emulate? Well, there's some talk, of course, that the combination uh, of populism that is a direct appeal uh, to uh, citizens rather than working through revered and traditional institutions is something that is more and more successful in the political world today in countries other than ours. And I think that is a uh, empirical observation. Uh, that's certainly correct. Uh, but in the United States, I don't see in the present landscape any other figures uh, who would take this populist route uh, with the enthusiasm uh, that Trump evidences. Uh, and again, what's to be emphasized is that for Trump, anything that works, works. And in the first couple of pages of The Art of the Deal, he says, well, I like to make a deal, but sometimes you have to walk away from a deal. Uh, it's again, as you said, transactional. What's going to work at the moment? The only figure in America that I can think of, or the only American figure uh, that might have uh, taken the Trump route uh, was Huey Long of Louisiana, who, of course, uh, uh, was assassinated uh, before he could uh, uh, fulfill what I think uh, were his presidential uh, ambitions. And he had the, the, the appeal to the, to the public, the grandiose uh, uh, personality, uh, etc., uh, that we see in Trump. But I don't see any other figures on the current scene uh, who uh, could match him uh, or imitate him. Of course, someone may emerge in the next few years, uh, as people do emerge in the world of politics. But as, but as of now, I would say uh, that Trump is unique, a rare bird. All right. Well, the book is entitled The First, How to Think About Hate Speech, Campus Speech, Religious Speech, Fake News, Post-Truth, and Donald Trump. And we've been joined today on New Books in Law with its author, Stanley Fish. Dr. Fish, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. I enjoyed the conversation greatly. 